0: Welcome to Sligo Socialist Podcast, a lefty local look at news and some other stuff. I'm Ruth Blood and it's my co-host Nigel Galler. Hello. How are you Nigel? I'm good. You excited to start our new podcast?
1: Yeah, it's good to be doing this.
0: So why are we doing this other than neither of us can make banana bread and we needed to do some cliche thing during the lockdown?
1: Um, yeah, another goddamn podcast. Um, I think it's just to have like... Local, you know, a kind of local left-wing perspective on on news, like, and try and keep it, you know, that we're discussing what's going on locally, and given, given, yeah, that kind of perspective, I think will be hopefully interesting and useful.
0: Yeah, there's lots of global and national um, look at things, so it'll be a bit different.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we'll combine ourselves to. To like, you know, always be you know, covering local things. But um yeah, we cover covered some and typically you know, we we'll probably do some like mini casts of things as they appear and kind of responding to what's going on in the news. Um, so yeah, should be fun.
0: That's the fun thing about a podcast is you can do whatever you want, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so recently, I had a chat with a couple of people.
1: Local, yeah,
0: or a localish.
1: Yeah. Um. So we chatted to. Dylan Foley um, because it was Halloween uh, and he uh, is a local historian and we were discussing the cholera epidemic in Sligo and the connection with Bram Stoker and Dracula which was really cool. Um, So we'll have that coming up but... Uh, in the first part here, we're going to talk to Joe Daly, who's a teacher activist from Castle and Mayo, um, discussing the latest ballot for industrial action in the ASTI. Um, so we'll pop over and say hello to Joe.
2: Well, uh, when we first had the when we when the news first broke that the CEC, the Central Executive Committee of the ASTI, was going to ballot members for industrial action. You know, we had the usual, you know, uh, media barrage of, oh, strike action, you know, sp- especially during a pandemic, 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 should strike even be on the ballot paper and all this kind of guilt tripping. Um, but you see, this ballot that we have, that we just got the results for, has come on the back of months of being ignored uh, by the government on all the safety issues. Uh, when When the reopening school plan first came out, they didn't even have masks on the, in the plan, you know, and we all know what the science is very clear that the, the main mode of transmission was through the air for COVID. And, uh, so they completely ignored that. And then we had to, we had to struggle behind the scenes to try and pressure them to, to change that. And at the last minute in, in, in mid August, they, they allowed, they made masks compulsory. Um, so the whole background was um, being completely ignored, um, and we uh, like as teacher activists, like I'm involved in in the ASTI. I'm a school steward. No, I'm speaking on my own behalf here, like right? But I mean, we we're part of a network of of teachers inside the ASTI. There's another network inside the TUI TUI grassroots, and there's also a network, uh, although probably not as uh, um, well organised inside the INTO. And so we were. Trying to bring pressure to bear, but the the actual the the committee that we have, the CC, which is a big 180 member committee, was blocked from actually blocked by the bureaucrats and the union union tops from meeting all through the pandemic. Even though they actually had a a a, an annual, annual general general meeting in July. To take take care of the legalities of the union, if you know what I mean, the, the, the housekeeping. So they blocked us from from forming. Uh, but eventually, when it did come forward, uh, our members, our um, network, put forward the you know the arguments and won uh, the CEC over to um, ballot strike action. Uh, now, on, uh, if I look at some of those ballot results. I mean, I don't know if you want me to go through some of that stuff. Um, I can do. But most of, the, most of the stuff that we put on it uh, was passed with a 3-to-1 uh, majority. So, for example, we had, um, I mean, the, the, the crisis was used in the schools to drive through an awful lot of changes in, in working practices, like, you know, um, the overflow meeting, overflow classes where the teacher would be videoed in their own classroom setting, in their own workplace as they worked, and that would be live streamed to an overflow room. I mean, that was brought in in schools around the country without any negotiation or any agreement by teachers. We just ended up back at school and all of a sudden, you know, we had these overflow rooms, which is extremely worrying because you have teachers beamed across you know the internet now uh, and you have fellas at home who are not coming into school uh, students at home not coming into school maybe for genuine reasons and they're they're watching the class at home they could be recording that they could be doing anything sending it off to anyone else it's very very uh, it's it's a serious thing like you know especially without any consultation so we've we've got that battle out there that was that was 4 to 1 actually uh, in turn almost 4 to 1 uh, then we had the second ballot which was again any changes that were due should be time neutral again was we found the teachers during the lockdown were working huge hours late late evening the, the you know the work life balance was completely disrupted and so that ballot passed 3 to 1 as well then the third ballot was the really big one and the, the unusual thing about this one was that it was kind of split into different parts so you could vote on each one. And so there was the physical distancing on two meters in every classroom. Now unfortunately this one didn't pass but you see I think there's a combination of factors like a lot of teachers didn't really didn't really feel that the union leaders would fight for the two meters. They didn't really feel that it was something that they could win on. Uh, There was also a lot of scaremongering coming from the right wing of the union and people kind of saying, oh, you know, the public won't back us for two metres social distancing and, and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, and so that that lost, that fell. Um, and we didn't win, the other one that we didn't win was the N95 masks for all students and teachers. Again, I don't know why that wouldn't have gone through, but I think it was this element of, oh, not being realistic. Um, but apart from that, every other... Uh, ballot was was passed uh, fairly comprehensive comprehensively with three to one um uh, majority you know so we do definitely have a mandate now for equal pay again that was been that reasserted uh, a mandate for fighting on oh yes um Extra resources for ICT resources for student teachers. We saw the, the whole uh, inequity there um, with poor students and, that, and not having the ICT resources. And we have all of that, and then we had um, the, uh, the oh yeah the re- redefinition of a contact. So it, like I mean, I could be a teacher in a classroom with for an hour or so, or even double class. And I would not, if a student was tested positive for COVID, I wouldn't be automatically defined as a close contact. Um, you have to have, you have to be within two meters face to face for 15 minutes or two hours in the same room. And that's very, very, that's a very high bar to reach, you know. So we had that, we want that redefined so that every teacher would be automatically assigned as a, as a close, contact, close, close contact. And then there was rapid testing uh, and tracing that passed and various other things. But so we do have a mandate now. And I think the the really key thing is that we've put this on the agenda um, and we've kind of broken through uh, the fear that people had now. We've just heard that the the doctors are going to come out they're balloting for strike action now too so there's I think we've started we've opened up this whole conversation and we've, we've kind of tried, broken the silence that was there on what was happening in the schools and on the, on, on the inadequacies you know and I think that that's a very positive thing uh, now I don't think there's going to be strike action anytime soon but I think it's there in our back pockets you know as a kind of a protective measure as a preventative measure you know and uh, I think, um, you know, it was badly needed.
1: And obviously there's going to be a concerted effort to try and divide workers, you know, healthcare workers, for instance, who people will be saying, you know, the nurses are out in the front line and they're pulling their weight. Why are the teachers doing this? And obviously that will need to be fought against. But what is your sense as to... Uh, you know where that sentiment is. Is it you know? Um,
2: it's hard to know where the where the public are. Uh, but my experience on, on social media is that a lot of parents uh, are supportive of teachers. I mean, consistently the ASTI surveys parents, and consistently were were like up, way up in the high eighties in terms of trust, and in terms of eighty five percent, eighty plus in terms of trust and. Um, respect and all the rest of it and in wider society as well. And we saw that there was a recent survey, uh, or it's actually, it's a constant, it's an ongoing survey by the HSE in terms of public opinion and the, and the health measures. And they, they're saying that the survey shows that a uh, significant majority um, want stricter uh, safety measures uh, in society. And that would that would seem to indicate that they would would support teachers in terms of safety measures. And the slogan that I think we need to kind of use uh, to win people over is safe schools, safe society. Because there's no doubt about it. Like, I mean, it just couldn't be the case, according to the, I mean, the government are saying that schools are in a high risk. But yet we've seen an exponential increase since schools uh, reopened. Um, And we're also seeing, I don't know if you've seen some of the Facebook pages there's there's one very good Facebook page uh, it's um, I think it's called what is it called um, alerting parents to COVID something like that but it's got like over 100,000 people uh, on that group now and it's got what it's got it is it takes a people take a snapshot of the confirm, confirmation letter from the HAC uh, whenever one of their kids or someone in their school gets uh, COVID and they send it into the group and the group uses that to count the number of COVID cases. And the numbers that they're counting are way higher. And they have a spreadsheet, an ongoing spreadsheet showing all the numbers. And the numbers that they're counting are way higher than the numbers that are being reported. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, suppression of the, and uh, you know, um, that of the of the actual cases and, the, and in order to kind of justify keeping the schools open so that's something that we would have to tackle I think the union has been very weak on that uh, in terms of getting the data out to, to, to teachers you know
1: yeah because I couldn't really understand it like Paul Reed was on the he from the HSD was on the radio this morning essentially saying that yeah. um, that you know it didn't seem like it was spreading in schools and um. You're just wondering how, you know, <laughs> you know, it's spreading so, so much in the community. What's so special about schools?
0: It could be very effective though, because they're, they're using things like it's, it's not a particular threat or it's not a higher risk. And you're just asking, is it a risk? So they've constantly set the bar up for something that nobody asked and then, then, off as if it's safe when we when yet yeah, the, the virus can't tell the difference between a school building and any other building it's not something magical that happens there that that means it's, it's any safer than anywhere else if it's an indoor environment with a cluster of people plus time that's perfect breathing for corona
2: yeah. It just seems crazy. Like, it seems just so, so unbelievable. Like, I mean, you, you have full class sizes. I'm lucky I'm in science. So the max they can put in my room is 24, you know? Um, and I don't have to deal, I don't have to deal with the overflow. So I'm very lucky like, because it's a practical subject. Um, but teachers of English, you know, maths and all those kind of subjects they have to have the overflow room, but uh, very often they're in smaller rooms. As well. labs are usually generally bigger, like a bit more space. My my lab lab is pretty pretty good. Like it's got good a lot of windows and it's got a lot of ventil- natural ventilation. You know, but an awful lot of classrooms are really stuffy, have no proper ventilation. The kids are all over each other constantly taking on the masks you know some of them are, because they find it hard to breathe they keep the mask down here under underneath their nose and, and stuff like that so it's really hard and you're constantly trying to remind them and you're then it's really difficult to teach as well because you're trying to project your voice and your, your voice is muffled in the mask and i find my voice is, is is suffering a lot um in the last couple of months you know <laughs> But uh, I think we have the opportunity now to really—we've put it on the agenda. We've put the safety in the schools. We've highlighted it with the ballot. And if we do nothing else, I and mean, that alone has been a positive, you know. Um, so I think it—I think it's a victory. I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's good that all the scaremongering didn't work, um, and we did—we did get members to vote in a significant number to—to to strike action.
1: Like hopefully, you know, the teachers give heart to other workers to. Um, you know, stand up in their workplaces if they're being forced into unsafe um, conditions. Really important that we support the teachers.
0: People that I think are going to have leverage in getting changes. Because I I think, um, like Joe mentioned about that Facebook group, there's obviously a lot of parents out there who are worried and don't feel like they're getting the full information and are looking for that information. So I think it's going to be really, really important that they've taken the the step and that other workers and other teachers join with them and give them their support. Because it's very, very hard for individual parents who don't. Do or who to believe, and that's going to make the difference, I think. If, um, if the teachers to put up a good fight,
2: yeah, it's amazing actually on that page the number of principals that are actually submitting that, uh, like obviously anonymously, but they're submitting it and saying, it like, I'm the principal in X, this place, blah, blah, blah. and they hide their identity, but it. A lot of us, from principals. Like, principals are petrified because obviously they're worried that they're going to be held responsible if a parent or teacher or a student catches in the school and gets very sick and has long-term implications or, God forbid, even dies, you know. I mean, what is going to, what's going to happen? I mean, this whole thing could change dramatically if a teacher or a few teachers die, you know. Um, that's when the, you know, the... Will, the, the stuff will hit the proverbial fan.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously what wasn't being taken into account is teachers that, like, you know, have underlying health conditions yes. are being pressured into um, yes. into going to work, you know, like, um, it's just...
2: Well, in my school, there was a woman, well, I should probably, should, I, say, I don't want to reveal any identities, but there was a teacher who had um, a serious underlying condition, and that, that company, Medmark, I don't know if you hear about them. Medmark is a private company that was handed over all the occupational um, occupational work stuff, you know, basically where they analyze whether you're fit to work or not. And um, they downgraded her risk, even though her doctor had her at high risk, they downgraded her, her, her level of risk. And then she wasn't, she was fit to work then under COVID. Uh, so she wasn't taking the risk and she had to she literally had to the union did damn all for um, they didn't make a big fuss about it in, online in fact the, the left political parties made more of it and uh, she she eventually had to go off and now she's without pay no pay unpaid and uh, she's living off her husband's pension The both two of them are now living now they've, they've older kids and all the rest and they're living off their. His pension, which is disgraceful. Like, people don't realise this kind of stuff is happening. You know, and this I think is it's a
0: perfect example of how um, take care of people, how quick that dissipates. Because as soon as that vulnerable person is a teacher, they're they're willing to recast people who might have a disability or a chronic illness and somehow. When well, you got loads of time off, or you get paid too much, and just recasting teachers as being mm. greedy instead of valuable members of the community, and recasting um, people with health issues as being awkward—that they mm. just be valid concerns. I think. That's kind of twisted things about is not is not just that they kind of left teachers in this situation and ignored their concerns, but they're actually twisting it as as a negative instead of just being completely rational.
2: Yeah, but I mean people don't realise the level the, the level of complicity of the union bureaucrats I mean the ASTI is one of the better unions uh, but still we're not that great. the union unions are not that great that's because there's more CEC is a bigger democratic body in the, in the ASTI in the G O I and the INTO they're, they're so so conservative and so complicit it's really, it's really hard to get them to move on anything you know they were I think it's they. I mean, they struck for equal pay just before the election there in February for a one-day strike. I was like almost four years after the ACI struck for it, you know. Um, so they're fucking way behind. What's the what's the CDC, Joe? CEC is the Central Executive Committee of the ACI. Okay. It's an unusual body you see because most unions don't have something like that it's it's got 180 members that are directly elected from branches so it's a larger democratic um kind of body of members that's the governing body and it if it's it rules like it and it's it's supposed to uh, dictate the standing committee whereas in most unions you have a smaller national executive <clears throat> that isn't anywhere near as directly accountable to the branches, and that's why the ASTI is more militant. That's the structural reason. It's not that you know our members are naturally more militant; it's just, it's just the structure of it. It's more susceptible to, to bottom-up um, pressure. You know.
0: Thanks, a million, to Joe Daly for that. That was really interesting. Um, look at the ASTI industrial action. Uh, one. Th- get to touch on quite there was even though it's really important to um, support the teachers, that we should also be looking to get involved with unions ourselves it's really important for people to get active in their own workplaces and see what unions they can join there
1: yeah I think that's really important there's going to be you know in the wake of this crisis um, there's going to be a massive onslaught on workers conditions and it's important that you know uh, workers are ready to fight for you know safe conditions in the workplace and fight for better wages and conditions more generally because yeah really unions are only as good as how active and militant um, the rank and file members are and um, you know Joe touched on the kind of structural reasons for um, ASTI being you know so militant but I think you know really good rank and file organizing any union is going to get going to bring about really you know um, positive change for workers
0: I think that's probably it. People kind of think that the union is something separate when it's not supposed to be you are it's supposed to be your thing, you are the union. Yeah, more of that attitude is going to be needed. And um, so it's great to see Asti is kind of leading the way there for teachers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next we have. A historical look at pandemics and a look at the local cholera epidemic which starts the architect archaeologist and coffee lover dylan foley hi dylan thanks for joining
3: hello thanks uh i'd say that um uh i was just thinking there that like uh, um, one of the things you notice about all this is that uh, there's nothing new under the sun as they say is there? so all of that kind of resistance and pushing people back into workplaces and <laughs> Uh, you know unions and all the rest of it is all all pretty familiar to the stories that we're talking about here Um, I I was looking at it earlier all right. that that, um, obviously I suppose we were talking a little bit about um, the fact that things like even like uh, unions and workers rights and that are directly linked to the history of pandemics in the 19th century Uh, probably you know I mean they're linked to a few different things but you know that's a, a big driver of it um, and it's interesting because I, 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 there was one thing we were that, that he touched on there, that thing to do with uh, masks, and I was going to say that like one team. One theme that runs through it all is like what you believe about what what you believe about disease, uh, about a particular disease, uh, kind of really dictates what happens in society or how it responds. Is probably like the big theme that I would say <laughs> that covers all of those things. If you know what I mean, uh, Do you because- see
0: a lot of similarities between the pandemic now with COVID and. Historical pandemics or cases of outbreaks.
3: So, when you look at it in the nineteenth century, I'm not going to go way back into the. You know, we won't go way back into the. Uh, maybe, well, not directly. Uh, but there was. The, the, we, we've seen this interesting thing that that argument about like refusing to deal with masks in the schools, for example, um, you know, refusing to acknowledge them, is directly, as we know, directly linked to how you imagine it transmits. Uh, this particular disease transmits itself. And if you believe that it's in the air, then you have this response to do with masks, and that's fine if, if you... But, but of course, and there's another side that resisted for a long time. Uh, were are insisting that it didn't, and, um, and that it transmitted uh, through touch or uh, direct trop- droplets or whatever it was, uh, which is also true, but it wasn't the whole story. Um, but we know that there's really there's also like political implications and social implications for what you believe about how a disease transmits, and that's why it becomes a political battle. In the and when you look back at the 19th century, you will see the same thing. The the uh uh, before they even had an understanding of um, the what they call the germ theory of diseases you had the uh, we there's actually two now I knew there was one miasma yeah <laughs> uh, there's actually two beliefs roughly about diseases there was the, the miasma crowd and the contagionists were their enemies. <laughs> Okay. And uh, neither of them had the idea of germs. Uh, So both were, both kind of had, they kind of had two ends of the same thing. They were kind of like both right and both wrong, if you know what I mean. And they weren't sure, somewhere in the middle was obviously the thing we know now about germs and viruses. But they had no inkling of these things and didn't understand that there was living organisms involved and all the rest. So if you can imagine a time like that, right up to, not ancient history, right up to about the 1890s, um, people hadn't really identified germs. And therefore, the same arguments were happening constantly, which was that the contagion-type people regarded disease came from inside the person, a bit like fermented alcohol or something. Like, this is the way they looked at it. And so this one lent itself to this very, what we would call, right-wing view. Uh, You know, it was all about, like, people, bad behavior or bad people or poor people who were evil or do you know what I mean? Whatever. Uh, dirty things and all the rest of it. And, and it. and it lent itself to a view that there was like no point in doing anything either about people's conditions and stuff. And uh, it wasn't very progressive in that sense. And um, a lot of it involved heavy duty quarantine rules and things like this, you know, and kind of caging people into areas of cities and that kind of stuff. And in fact, there was even contagion acts as late as the 1880s that were directed mostly against women, interestingly, uh, and against prostitutes in particular. Um, uh, 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 and sort of the entire society's crackdown was all against them, you know, uh, in port towns and things like this. And women could be arbitrarily uh, arrested by, doc, you know, taken off the streets by doctors and examined and imprisoned into, uh, I think they were called lock hospitals or something anyway. and Um, Anyway, this came from that particular belief. Now, against that belief was the other side of it, the miasma crowd, which uh, believed that it came from outside, um, from uh, conditions and uh, smells and uh, bad circumstances, Um, you know, uh, dirt and putrefaction and things like this. And Florence Nightingale would have been in this school. And uh, the miasmatists, to be fair to them, even though they were wrong, uh, they uh, were more socially progressive in the sense that they were the ones that kept on arguing, and this is where it fed uh, uh, big time into the social movements to clean up uh, people's environment. Uh, The the ones that believed in the miasma uh, thought that it wasn't down to people being just nasty people, and that uh, if you cleaned up the uh, conditions for the poor, and their housing and all the rest of it that it, you, you would also cure the causes of disease and so it was very much part of the progressive um, uh, or, uh, beginnings of the socialist uh, movements in the 18 probably from about the 18 well early, early enough times on uh, 1800s onward like um, you would see there's actually uh, a
0: connection between this and and masks
3: is the interesting thing. There is, is directed. That's
0: not ancient history.
3: No, because the yeah. So to put it to run it into fast forward, these two things came to a head in the 1890s when they actually discovered germs, and then um, it, well, the germ theory, as they call it. So they discovered virus and bacteria and actually could see them for the first time, and so that's fine. Then the, then the argument began now. It's interesting because the the movement to improve the environment had already been happening all the way through the nineteenth century. You know, they'd improved, they uh, uh, the sewers, water, uh, the public health acts had come in in the eighteen forty eight, I think, and then the contagion acts weren't great, but they were kind of vaguely heading in the right direction uh, eventually. Uh, but these, um, uh, once the germ thing came in, they they uh, they, they sort of. Um, Lost, lost, once they got into vaccines and that, ironically, they lost sight of improving the environment, just as an aside. Uh, but you're right as well, they, they had to fight against the, everyone believed in miasma or everyone believed in contagion. It didn't, you know, one or the other, right? And uh, they, they were trying to defeat those, scientists were trying to defeat those beliefs. Uh, at that time, this, the doctor, the medical societies and scientists were trying to get rid of those beliefs and re- and get people to understand that it was germs and viruses that were involved. And they fought a very long battle against the belief of the contagionists in particular that it was exhalations from uh, corrupted patients that infected people right and by uh, the when they had defeated that they had this they were very insistent that uh, it wasn't just floating around in the air all the time that it was a uh, um, that it was uh, droplets and things like this yeah and I think we we've seen the same thing recently when the when who uh, as we'd understood, who had resisted, uh, the WHO had resisted with um, great resistance in the medical community to anything to do with aerosol or airborne transmission. Um, and uh, from what I understand in articles, that that was linked directly to that, that the, that that it would be too reminiscent of, of that kind of situation that um because those arguments had been battled against for about you know decades back in the 1900s and before you know so you got you get like uh, old arguments rearing their head again and causing kind of havoc even in the modern age you know <laughs> which is interesting no?
0: That's fascinating that something uh, a really really old medical concept has such an impact. In a in a pandemic in a pandemic.
3: And- well, the, pro- the problem with this one, the problem with this particular disease, of course, is that some of them are transmitted that way, but some of them weren't. And in the nineteenth century, it caused total confusion because you you could have a theory of like, you know, like germs, it's in the air or something, but if it's cholera, it's not. It's in water. So each one is different. So, so you might do the right thing. You might do the right thing to defeat something like COVID nineteen back then, when you didn't understand things like this. And, uh, uh, but it's not going to have any effect on cholera because as soon as you touch the contaminated uh, water or drink it or something, you're you're done for. And so they didn't understand why it was so random to them. And we 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 would have seen something similar when it was. So, like, for example, I would just say that when, when it hit in the 1830s in Sligo, for example, cholera was not known, and it had come from it was coming from the east. Nobody knew what it was, where it was coming from. Um, Bram Stoker's mother, Charlotte Stoker, was here in um, Old Market Street at the time. I think the family were stationed here as military. Uh, and at this time, all you have is belief in what we talked about—the miasmas and you know things like this which is essentially a people imagine in a sort of, it's a cloud of something coming from somewhere, you know, uh, they usually put it down to like smells and things like this. But at that time there was newspapers were new. So you had a new kind of media, you had disinformation <laughs> and you had, uh, all that kind of thing beginning. Um, she, she, uh, I don't have the full text here but she does track she says that in, in the beginning of her thing she says that they were tracking it coming from the east and they were find out it was in hamburg then you know london then dublin and then eventually in sligo because of course sligo was a a fairly uh, major port town at that time like on the west coast i think the second largest after Limerick. Um, it
1: was the worst hit wasn't it in- in Ireland, from the-
3: yeah, so worst hit, it would have had about eleven or twelve thousand people in the town at that time. But it really the population is a lot different. We have about sixty thousand in the county now, but this is eighteen thirty two, so it's before the famine. So there's about there's nearly two hundred thousand people in the county at that time. So the, the density of population is way way higher. You know, I think the census a bit a few years later was about one hundred eighty seven thousand in County Sligo alone. Wow. So so even though the town is seems a bit smaller, it's actually very densely populated everywhere around us. You know? Now the town is it's it's like the whole center town they were packed in sligo was uh one a, a, a typical kind of busy enough port and um yeah, yeah it got hit around august she describes how they, they by that stage they were all in a panic um uh, having read the accounts and then the first people started to get sick around the 11th of august which is something we might mention which is some people uh, point out that Stoker Dracula takes his victims on the eleventh of August. <laughs> um, Stoker were probably referencing that. Uh, but back in Sligo, the uh, the um, they had doctors preparing the place. They whitewashed everything, and they cleaned everything, and they did what you do when you're being a sort of progressive in that sense of the, you know dealing with these miasmatic things or whatever. But of course, it wasn't having any effect on the water supply. They didn't understand that that's what it, what it was um, coming from. Um, so, you know, they did what they could. But obviously by that stage, we had a lot of disinformation going on as well about people. And people actually attacked the doctors. <laughs> Mobs turned up with clubs and all sorts and ran them out because they, they thought that if, there was the, if they were setting up a little hospital and if there was a hospital, then there was going to be sick people. And, you know, the doctor, they, some of them thought that the doctors themselves were the source of the disease, um, even. And... Uh, <laughs> she uh, describes how um, it hits and then eventually people start dropping, basically dropping like flies left, right, and center. Um, She says, it's utter strangeness and men's want of experience or knowledge of its nature or how best to resist its attack added, if anything, uh, to its horrors. So it's the unknown element, I suppose, is something we'd be familiar with. Um, Of course they had lockdowns then as well. So they, you know, they didn't have public health things at the time, but they did lock. They did basically lock the town down. But uh, what that involved as well was digging trenches across the roads outside the town, and we were actually met, guarded. If you know what I mean. People weren't allowed in or out, and you're basically left to your fate within the town. <laughs> um, People wrote, uh, because they believed it was to do with like vapours and stuff, they lit tar barrels in the streets. So at night time, she describes the whole place lit up with burning barrels and uh, shadows everywhere and all this kind of thing. Um, she describes the... Um, uh, in a very few days, she says the town became like a city of the dead. Uh, she told a visit and friends to the Holmes family who consisted of three adults and eight children. We left them all well at half past nine and the next morning at nine o'clock we heard that six of the family were dead and had already been buried. Uh, the town was deserted, businesses shut, people stayed indoors, no vehicles uh, uh, moved except the cholera carts or doctors' carriages. Clergy fled the town, of course. Uh, wakes were suspended uh, riots were about to break out all the time and the only sounds to be heard were the cries of bereaved women and children and at one stage I think Charlotte she's about 15 at that time she actually she can hear a child crying in a house next to, next door and she goes and comforts that uh, Uh, child I think uh, was left alone sick and we could hear her crying so she begged her mother to go and help her and she let her go and uh, the child dies in her arms an hour or so afterward she comes back in and is fumigated and all the rest and doesn't catch the disease obviously because she survived she says by twos or threes our dead neighbours were carried away one morning four were carried at once dead out of the opposite house and then I think they had a couple of chickens and a cow out the back and used to leave milk out the front uh, for poorer people but when the chickens all died, that was when her mother decided, that's it, we're out of here. <laughs> so they um, made a dash for Ballyshannon and had to break the barricade to get there. They were actually turned back, I believe. Um, now, she would have heard stories, whether we don't know you know, how true they are, but like of people you know, buried alive, um, people being pushed into pits and <laughs> buried alive with, uh, you know, uh, not allowed out of the pits and things like this. It's true that uh, the fever hospital up in town here um, the official death toll would be about eight or six to 800 or so, I think. I'm not quite sure of the figures because I don't have them here in front of me. Uh, but we all know that they were under-reporting. You, you, to get that number, you had to actually be registered at the fever hospital, which meant you had to have actually got there. And, of course, most people didn't get there. You know? So they reckon probably casualties or anything up to about 2,000. And... Um, it is interesting when she gets back to the town that, uh, that a lot of the towns fled. And apart from the couple of thousand or probably, or you know, at least one and a half thousand have probably died. Most of the rest have fled the scene and grass has grown through the middle of the streets, you know, streets that we would know like O'Connell Street, places like this. And she says you can hear footsteps. If you're on High Street, you can hear the footsteps. Now, if someone walks on High Street, you can hear the footsteps over on the market yard side because it's just no... Uh, you know it's post-apocalyptic kind of scenario <laughs>
1: <laughs> kind of like when I was walking around town during lockdown you
3: know? yeah, yeah 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 so she survives that and then um she goes on interesting character because she goes on then to be herself she um actually becomes a disabled rights activist and various other kind of feminist things she gets involved in she works with Oscar Wilde's dad as a um he was an ear doctor when he wasn't collecting archaeological artifacts and um uh, I think for the deaf was one of her big things she was into. But of her sons, Bram Stoker writes, as we know, writes Dracula. But two of the other sons are doctors. And I think her brother, one of her brothers, was uh, uh, William. I think was a uh, was a president of the Royal College of Surgeons. And the two the other two were doctors. One was a military doctor, and I think the other one uh, was a doctor practicing in Ireland. Was in charge of the fever hospital in Dublin. Interestingly. And I don't know uh, if, if you have any questions. I'm just rambling on here, like, yeah, uh, so really interesting. Yeah, good, um, to that.
0: yeah.
3: Um, so Bram Stoker himself they said was a sickly child who grew up listening to this account from his mother. Basically, is what I was going to say, you know, this is where it crosses over into the um, but they say to Bram because of his contact with his family, with the doctors, and with this with that background, uh, and then with all of that kind of ideas about miasmas and stuff his mother actually describes that this is an interesting point she describes the tar barrels and a sulfurous kind of cloud hanging over the town the whole time uh, this whole place is kind of orange with smoke or whatever and all the birds are dying which uh, she i think at her age and whatever she regarded as a kind of uh, horrible sign of impending doom you know that kind of way as you would um So anyway, later later on in the 1870s, Bram Stoker, now he's famous for writing Dracula, but it's interesting that he wrote a a small, a very short story in the meantime. Before that, in the 1870s, he wrote a short story called The Invisible Giant. And it's about nobody in this, it's about a little town in the west of somewhere where nobody believes in giants anymore. But they actually do exist apparently, but they're in the marshes and nobody knows about them, except this little girl can see this giant coming one day. And it's a huge kind of cloud in the sky that's moving slowly towards the town. And actually, uh, she goes and warns the people in the town, along with an old man, who's kind of a virtuous old man type person. Uh, But nobody believes them. And nobody believes in giants anymore. And everyone's arrogant about everything. And he actually describes how they all live in tenement blocks. And everyone had become greedy. (laughs) And there was only little sex amount of rich people, and then everyone else was poor. And uh, so he describes this kind of social conditions and, the, and and the various things like this. And of course, then the the, the giant, as he calls it, which is a, a, arrives into the town, and of course, people start dropping dead. And uh, you know, it's a, it's obviously a, a disease, really, that he's describing. But he um, he has the little girl talking to birds all the time. Um, uh, throughout the story, she's been sla- uh, before the giant had arrived. She's um, the little boys running around uh, um, slagging her off for having being friends only with the birds and that she, uh, and all this kind of thing. Um, but of course, as this contagion, uh, as the giant is taking everybody out in the town, it, it also kills off the birds. So she's very upset and, you know, this kind of stuff. And so I, I think you can see that this was like, this, this little story was regarded as a sort of, uh, his kind of, um, the first one where he manifests the, the, the disease as being, uh like uh, personifies it, you know, and later on he takes that he takes that and writes a more sophisticated book uh, called Dracula, if you know what I mean. With, but it's the same sort of concepts behind the whole thing, where it would be fairly. Ex- I mean, it's fairly accepted that it would be um, based on the sort of Victorian uh, concepts of disease that we're talking about, and 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 uh, how it, infection occurs, and how and and important, very importantly, even in Dracula. How the social implications of what you believe about disease really matter. Uh, what you believe about it really matters because it has social implications, is what I was trying to say actually. Um, and that arguments are made all the time based on, uh, like, if you believe, you know, this form of transmission or that form of transmit, you know, um, then it's either down to people's behaviour that's making it wrong, or there's things that can, and there's nothing you can do about it except make people behave right. So it becomes this very moralistic version, like the contagious types, or the, or you have the other ones, the miasma types that were that actually it's, it's the poor. It's, it's not their own. It's not their fault that it happens. It's that we can improve the conditions of society, and then it wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? And it would make better for everybody and all that kind of stuff. And I think we have exactly the same arguments going on now because a lot of that went out the window. In the nineteenth century, sorry, in the 19, in the early nineteen hundreds when they invented vaccines and antibiotics, we had this window where the in, the pressure to improve the physical conditions of society for people actually lessened because and it and it became disconnected because it, it wasn't you didn't have to do that anymore. You could just get a vaccine. You, know what I mean? you didn't have to like change you didn't have to alter all of the so the 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 progress that had been made by um uh, with the water and the sanitation and the housing and the you know this kind of thing uh kind of slowed down a bit because they uh they didn't need to do it they could just have a medical solution and um it kind of but it's come back full force now uh, is what I would say because um because we don't have medical solution
1: <laughs> we still still kind of seemed the same kind of um teams happen and I mean essentially what Fianna Gale and Fianna Fáil are trying to do now is wait for the technical solution which is the vaccine they're not trying to improve the health service they're not trying to improve people's conditions and you know they're, like, they're basically like hoping that they you know that there'll be something. Kind of- technical fix of a vaccine
3: that'll save them so. exactly Yeah, there was things I, I wouldn't I, that was the Sligo version I mean I, I, I read briefly about some there's cases in Hamburg uh, of uh, cholera outbreaks in the 1890s which are very it's even more focused in the sense that you could see the actual the 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 um, the merchant cl- the merchant power that's governing the city is continually trying to push them back to work, and trying to deny that it's that it's uh, spreading in a certain way and all this kind of thing, and of course this actually exacerbates the um, uh, exacerbates the uh, the epidemic and ten you know thousands of people die who shouldn't have in the first place and you know so so the same sort of themes are going on because out of that of course become uh, comes um, the uh, the workers uh, organized, uh, as you know in the ni- early 1900s, and actually it's true in Sligo too, because conditions in Sligo would have been terrible right up until in the early 1900s. They're still pretty abysmal, and um, it had some of the highest typhoid uh, and uh, incidences rates in the country, and uh, even in 1901, I think. And uh, by 1911, you've got um, fairly heavy you know they start to organize themselves into the itgwu and things like this become very prominent in Sligo. and i think probably partly because of the things we're talking about not you know the industrial base but also the fact that the, literally simply because disease and the conditions of life were extremely uh, in your in your face here you know they were very are like all of the industrial um, any kind of uh, industrial towns and cities like that They were literally just dangerous places to live. Didn't Kathleen Lynn,
2: you know, the the Republican uh, during the Irish Revolution, didn't she kind of say that the effect of the flu um, epidemic on Ireland and on Irish people and on, on the Irish poor had that same kind of uh, you know, broad con- uh, change in consciousness and kind of stirred people up. I mean, the whole effect of it on the psychology of the people uh, led to had a really dramatic effect. That was one of the comments that she made. You know, it's kind of like that in that, in, in that way. And it's, you know, we could possibly be seeing after COVID uh, a similar kind of a
3: surge and kind of consciousness afterwards. Yeah, you'd expect so, yeah. Yeah, you would expect. You, I, I think it is happening already because it push you, people. It's, it puts it into stark relief, doesn't it? You know, kind of the, like the, It's exactly linked. I mean, it's perfect. What you were like, what you were talking about earlier with the teacher, the predicament the teachers find themselves in, and why the unions exist in the first place, mm. and what they're what they're supposed to do, and what they come from, is exactly from the same problem of of uh, of um, the conditions in in uh, urban situations, and that's fine. But in, ex- in exchange for that industrialized society, you've got to have stand you've got to have standards to a certain level, or else uh, the, it gets out of uh, hand quite quickly. Because the same condi- the same conditions are the things producing the uh, exacerbating the epidemics, if you know what I mean, as in the dense populations and things like that. You know, so yeah, um, so yeah, all of those things are straight they're, they're straight back. Um, uh, straight back into contention and we're dealing with them right now in, in exactly the same it's exactly the same uh, not not exactly but pretty much the same issues as in the 1880s and 90s you have the same arguments <laughs> you know no oh, no it's not it's not this it's that and, you know. it's almost on a higher level
2: isn't it happening now I mean I think the realisation is even wider because we because of social media and technology and like it, the understanding of it is is, is is kind of deeper, I think, among people, and because of that, I think it'll, it'll have an even more profound effect. I think it'll be more amplified because of that. And if you look at the, the Black Lives Matter, I mean, the the, the, the widespread and the, the power of it and it, the global nature of it, I mean, it's directly linked with the the effects of of the pandemic on the poorest sections and on, on people of color and things like that.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I so I said at the very beginning that it would have been. Yeah, exactly. You're right. It would have been uh, newspapers and other forms of so- mass media had just come in even in the 1830s yeah. and started to have this effect where people understood that diseases were coming and this is happening and maybe we can do something and you know and they start to read and write. So yeah, you're uh, you, that's that's ex- that's exactly it. Now it's on a on a hugely magnified scale of information flow. But well, again, again, we have the disinformation as well.
1: Yeah, but I, I think, like, the vast majority of people, there is a lot of misinformation and people listening to fake news, but if you look at what you were saying, Joe, um, about, you know, the, the want in the general public for more restrictions, they obviously see that there's, you know, that, like, the government now are breaking with science. that They're not listening to it, you know, whereas... Um, I suppose that mightn't have, been, you know, obviously that like kind of dynamic wasn't probably happening around the time of cholera because obviously they didn't have the right science. But like, you know, in this particular instance, they have the right science, and you know, workers and ordinary people are able to see where. Where governments are deviating from it in the interests of the economy, and you know, against the interests of public health and against the interests of uh, ordinary workers,
3: at least we can see it. That's true. I, I think that, like the chief, you know, like medical officers and, and people like that were not were only in eighteen fifties they started to be appointed. You know, that kind of way. So they were in response to the repeated cholera outbreaks.
1: One of the interesting so, things that you were saying as well is that, like. The most vulnerable were being blamed as well, like for the, for the crisis, it was women and, you know, prostitutes and, you
3: know, like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. when they did bring in when they did bring in laws, that was the thing I noticed in the eighteen seventies when they when they actually were forced to after campaigns and various outbreaks of things and all the rest of it. And they, they ended up when they did bring in laws, yeah. They were targeted. They ended up not being general improvement of society laws. They ended up being like targeted straight at vulnerable groups laws. <laughs> yeah. Which actually we see a little bit of now as well, don't we, actually, when you think about it.
0: Yeah. view towards policing it as well yeah there's a actually dealing with it
3: exactly so we get pressure you get pressure from the sort of like bring in fines bring in the get the guards bring the army out whatever you know and I, I, mean, I think that's they had a yeah sorry
1: one of the things that we were going to talk about just like obviously in the, in the local news is there's been like local house parties and all, all that kind of thing. But like that there's a serious effort from the establishment now to blame the spread of the virus on young people, not young people in schools now, but young people having house parties as if that's why it's systematically running through, running through the, the population um, and like, you know, It's horrible because like lots of young people are the ones that are doing lots of the frontline work that are, you know, working in care, that are working in shops when they're um, putting themselves through college and, and like they're the ones that's been used as scapegoats.
2: Yeah, I think it's very important for the left in Ireland. To really make that argument against, against that, like to really... I think the left parties have done a pretty good job of that. The unions, again, have, have failed miserably in that one. Um, but, uh, yeah, we need to keep, you know, the focus on where the re- real problem is in the workplace and the lack of action uh, in regard to schools and those kind of things, not let them off the hook. Yeah. But, I mean... Yeah, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how they ramp that up. Um, they, and they will, because the pressure will come on them, because they will want to deflect. They will continue to try and deflect um, and um, avoid blame, as they always
3: do. But we have to really keep the finger pointed where the blame belongs. Absolutely. Most most of those, like you said, the public were fairly well-informed. Most of those react, attempts to be reactionary and to... Blame, blame people and bring in heavy laws and you try, you know, the things that by bringing in a law against parties, for example, or something that that, prov- that somehow proves that parties are the problem. <laughs> mm. But of course, it's, it's, it's not that true at all. I mean, we would have commented the other day with uh, uh, himself, uh, I think Ruth, when we were looking at some of the figures, but NFET had confirmed it themselves. Uh, Tony Holohan had confirmed it himself that we were saying that the, uh, the, the natural increase rate of the virus is about 5.5, that RO thing, uh, uh, left to its own devices, but that the public action alone uh, on social distancing and whatever other measures has brought it down to about 1.4. And, uh, and, as, and as we were saying, there's a huge decrease there because of the vast majority of the public doing exactly what they are supposed to be doing, and that the re- and that the reason it's rising is, is, is therefore nothing to do with the public as such. It's purely to do with the, f- the physics of the virus. It's it's uh, the public the public without without literally locking everyone into their house it's always going to have some level of spread if you know what I mean unless unless you and to bring it down below 1.4 need to bring in is where all the measures you're talking about come in uh, whether they be uh, investment in the environment as the, and in the contact tracing and in uh, the masks and what have you but it's it's the um, the government's part of it the contact tracing and the uh, uh, the bit where they uh, like what they do in Korea and that where they where they build the infrastructure to go in and take it down. That brings it below... That that allows it to go below one. And then you can eradicate the virus. Mm. But they didn't do any of that. Mm. Uh, You know, so...
2: And then you hear this, like, I mean... Their argument against that is, I mean, that's all zero COVID is is not possible, and they, they, they continually try to deflect. And we even when when Paul Murphy and these were raising in the doll. I mean, Michael Martin was saying, you know, when when the, when he just mentioned China as one of the examples, along with New Zealand, he ignored New Zealand and just said, I can't I can't believe that you're mentioning, you know, such strong uh stay uh, in relation to this there's just a complete fucking deflection um, instead of actually looking at the scientific basis for zero community transmission and the, the, the really really you know intense uh, testing and tracing and then again as well the, the, the quarantine at the airports I mean who's flying in and out on these Now it's it's not ordinary working people. (laughs) No, it's it's business, big business people for the most part.
0: It's Um. like that thing, the you know, science is biased towards the left. You know, it's uh, doesn't work out like that. You know, you're it's not a political ideological thing. You know, just going to react to the conditions it has so we know that zero COVID is an approach that works and we know exactly what we're doing now doesn't work so I think that's it like they can get up and do their usual things of deflecting to the left when things aren't going their way but uh, COVID doesn't get the PR release like it's, it's not it's not too bothered what they say at a press conference if it gets the chance to spread it will and I think that's that's where that tension is there with the science. That's always there. Is that like they keep treating it like it's a, a PR crisis, not like it's a public health health crisis.
3: They're just looking for the magic, the magic word, the magic uh, spin that's going to make it all go away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's not working for them so far. Well, that's the thing. That's what we were saying, actually. That's exactly the same. We st- we, we do what we just talked about in the night even in the nineties. So you do see that exactly, where there's like this there's a terrible disaster back then. It was even worse, of course. It's a terrible disaster. But then there's all this resistance and messing for ages. And eventually it takes another one before you know, a bit like our second wave or whatever, before they, they start going, oh well, higher look. It's a bit like the second wave now. Our 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 government's decided, well, actually maybe we have to do some kind of contact tracing, you know. Um because they've resisted, even though they had, uh, you know, everyone, WHO and all them had instructed them, and they'd seen from the examples that you talked about in China and Korea and wherever else that um, that uh, and we're told that states that don't invest in that don't will have uh, the virus will come back, and you know, so um, but they didn't do it. Uh, some some strange uh, thinking that we don't have to bother with contact tracing. To, to be honest, partly because I have a suspicion myself that partly because it highlights the things we're talking about, it highlights the, the the, I, I think it, it would highlight things that were the problem they really have which is that indoor environments which are nearly all workplaces including schools and things like this all need to have big investment in them yeah. and all, all become all are now classable in my mind as as um, there's ha- workplace hazard COVID is a workplace hazard and in that scenario everything needs to be um, invested in and rejigged to some extent And I think that's exactly the thing they were trying to avoid. Yeah. And and Contact tracing highlights it too, because it actually tells you how and where it's coming from. And for a long time, that's exactly what they were not telling us is how and where it's coming from.
1: Many thanks uh, to Dylan Foley there for the history of the cholera epidemic in Sligo um, and the connections with Bram Stoker and, and Dracula really interesting stuff and thanks again to Joe Daly for giving us an update on the industrial action from the STI and teachers and yeah keep an eye out for Sligo Socialist Podcast we'll have another episode coming out very soon uh, thanks again